Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judge McNamara? Yes. Hi. Hi. Hi, it's Lizzie O'Leary. How are you? Just fine. Nice to meet you this way. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I called up a judge in Wisconsin named Nicholas McNamara. He serves on the circuit court in Dane County, which includes the city of Madison, the state capital. Before McNamara was a judge, he was a lawyer. He represented plaintiffs in negligence cases, civil cases. But when he became a judge in 2009, that changed. His caseload became almost exclusively criminal. Did you have a picture in your mind of what, say, evaluating an offender or sentencing would be like before you actually took office? No, I had no idea. I had no. <laughs> Eventually, of course, he figured it out. As a starting point in Wisconsin, there are three primary sentencing factors for a judge to consider. The gravity of the offense, the character of the offender, and the need to protect the public. To assess these factors, Wisconsin judges can order what's called a pre-sentence report. I want to get background information on the defendant and sometimes from victims when there's victims. And that's what the, a pre-sentence report does. And it interviews family members of the defendant and of the victim and history of education and traumatic life experiences for the defendant, other challenges, disabilities, mental health, uh, addiction issues, criminal With this information in hand, eventually a decision is made. A sentence is handed down, but the process doesn't end there. We're required to explain our sentencing decisions and all of our guiding cases and instruction and education for sentencing confirms that a judge's discretion that's unguided and unchecked is, is not due process, that the rationale for sentencing decisions must be made knowable and subjective to review that primarily means we have to explain it, but in terms of how we actually reach numbers or other decisions, whether to incarcerate or release in a community, that's, that's not easy to explain. This question, this question of how judges come to these decisions, three years or five, whether there's an opportunity for parole, it's hard. It's been known for a long time that the sentencing process is imperfect. Like the rest of us, judges have biases, sometimes conscious, sometimes not. There was a famous study back in 2011 that showed Israeli judges presiding over parole hearings were more lenient at the beginning of the day and after lunch. So back in the first few years of McNamara's time as a judge, the state made a change. The Department of Corrections began giving us, at the end of all of the pre-sentence reports, the compass evaluation. COMPASS is an acronym. It stands for Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions. It's used in a bunch of different ways, but a simple explanation is this. COMPASS is an algorithm that's used to predict recidivism, or how likely it is that a person will reoffend. One part of COMPASS, the risk assessment, adds up risk factors to create a picture of the defendant. 
That might include things like age, criminal history, and employment history. Those factors then create a score which judges can use in their sentencing decisions. Algorithms like Compass are increasingly popular. They're used in 35 states, but they don't always work like they're supposed to. Today on the show, algorithms and criminal justice, and how one program intended to make sentencing fairer didn't. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Judge McNamara remembers the first time Compass was introduced to him. The company that makes the algorithm, it was then called North Point, presented the tool at a big meeting. There were a lot of lawyers and judges there. And it actually kind of felt like a sales pitch, but hmm. that, and that's what it was. So, yeah. What was your reaction when you were presented with with Compass? My reaction first was very negative about the fact that Compass uh, and North Point, the business that owned it and profited from it, were very very clear about the proprietary nature of their algorithms, their various formulas, and the data itself. And then also, the more we learned about it, and including at that original presentation, the less useful it seemed. One of McNamara's first issues with the software was its purpose. It was not created to be used by judges at sentencing. It was never designed for that. It was never intended for that by the people who created it. It was created to be used by correction officials and officers supervising people either in an institution in terms of their risk or for placement in the community primarily. His second problem was how the program defined risk. Compass only evaluates the risk of the defendant being rearrested within two years of the assessment. But judges didn't always keep that time frame in mind when making decisions. I know of people that were using it and still do consider it that forget that a high-risk person is simply a person 
who's going to be, has some degree of risk of rearrest within two years. So for Judge McNamara, sitting in this presentation, the list of problems with the compass algorithm was growing longer and longer. But perhaps the biggest flaw in his mind was transparency. The algorithm was proprietary, so the judges couldn't evaluate its inner workings. The absolute refusal to even contemplate taking out certain questions or telling us how we could re-weight answers to certain questions or rescore. That was the first big objection. It's just like, wow, this is a black box, and you're asking the government to start using this, and, and you won't even tell us how it works. The question of how Compass and other algorithms like it work is something journalists and researchers have tried to answer. But it's hard. After all, how can you evaluate whether an algorithm makes sentencing fairer if you can't get all the data? But there's one new study in one state where we can see inside an algorithm in Virginia. It's not Compass, but it's similar. Why did you choose to look at Virginia, given that these things are used in lots of places around the country? So Virginia was one of the first states to adopt risk assessments and sentencing. This is Jennifer Doliak. She's an economist at Texas A&M, and she's been studying Virginia's sentencing algorithm for nonviolent offenders. Virginia had just implemented a truth and sentencing reform during the the mid-90s. This is a reform that pushes the system toward incarcerating people for their full sentence length, so basically reduces the possibility of parole. And people looked at that and said, our incarceration rates are going to skyrocket as a result of this, so we need some sort of release valve, right? We need to figure out who to let out so that we have room in our prisons for all these people that are going to be incarcerated now due to truth and sentencing. And so the nonviolent risk assessment was implemented with the explicit goal of identifying the 25% lowest risk nonviolent offenders and recommending them for diversion from incarceration. The other reason why Doliak wanted to study Virginia's algorithm is that, unlike Compass, it's transparent. The information that goes into the risk assessment is is public. And so it's stuff like the person's age, their gender, their criminal history. During the period we were studying, it also included some socioeconomic factors, like whether they're employed, whether they're married. Why did you want to study them? So when I went into this research, I was actually extremely optimistic about the potential of risk assessments to reduce racial disparities in criminal sentencing. So we know that in general, humans are not that good at making predictions. In particular, we tend to get distracted by a lot of irrelevant information, like whether we're hungry or cold or tired or whether our football team lost that weekend. Uh, There's a whole bunch of research showing that those types of factors tend to negatively affect the defendant that's before the judge and particularly tends to negatively impact black defendants before the judge. And in addition, we know that that humans are racially biased also. And so it seems like there's a lot of room for a tool like this to improve decision making and reduce racial disparities if we sort of are, are able to crunch the numbers in a standardized way across all defendants and then present that information to the judge in a way that can inform their decision, maybe cause them to pause a bit. If they if they think someone standing in front of them is high risk and the computer says they're low risk, maybe they will think about that and, and change their decision. This is an experience that Judge McNamara mentioned having when we spoke to him, taking a moment to examine his own biases when the risk assessment and his personal assessment were at odds. For Doliak, this interaction is essential. As an economist, the the way I frame this problem is is not so much, you know, whether the algorithm is 
is racist or biased relative to some objective truth. It's whether it's more biased than the judge would be. Relative to the status quo, does this move us in a better direction? It doesn't have to completely solve the problem, but it could move us in a better direction. And so we were really interested going into this project. You know, all of all the existing research has really considered these algorithms basically in a vacuum. Thinking of them as replacing the judge's decision. But in practice, they don't ever replace the judge's decision. They're just informing the judge. And so what the real question is how the machine and the human interact. Doliak and her co-author, Megan Stevenson, released their findings in a working paper late last year. And their questions about that interaction between judges and algorithms yielded some surprising results. One thing stood out to me when I read your paper. There's a sentence in here that says, we find that racial disparities increased in the courts that appear to use risk assessments most. Why do you think that is? So... We don't find any change in racial disparities when we look statewide. When we, it is really when we just look at the, the jurisdictions where the judges did seem to change their behavior the most when this policy went into effect, that we see a slight increase in racial disparities. Um, so black defendants do worse relative to white defendants. I think there are two reasons for this. So one is that the risk assessments themselves are worse on average for black defendants relative to white defendants. Uh, it tends to be due to things like the criminal history information, as well as socioeconomic information, so whether they're employed or whether they're married, um, those tend to be correlated with race. Even though we should say that race is not explicitly mentioned in these assessments. Exactly. So it's it's uh, unconstitutional to include race in these algorithms, which is a whole nother conversation. There are lots of smart people who are you know now arguing maybe we should rethink that because there's actually a good reason to you control for race and then subtract that out and that could solve some of these problems. But as it currently stands, you're not allowed to include race as a variable but you can include a whole bunch of other stuff that's correlated with race. And even just criminal history alone tends to be correlated with race for you know, a variety of reasons, including the biases in the criminal justice system. And so part of it is the risk assessments themselves. The scores do seem to be a bit biased against black defendants. But the other problem is that judges implement or pay attention to the risk assessments in a racially biased way. So if you see two defendants, one black, one white with the same risk score, they're more likely to divert the white defendant from incarceration than they are the black defendant. And so there's still this the, the element of human bias that we were hoping these risk assessments would remove now just affects how they're implemented. Their second major finding centers on youth. As these algorithms became more and more common around the country, there was this popular idea that judges were making a lot of mistakes in their sentencing decisions, letting high-risk people slip through the cracks of the system. But, Doliak says, the decision to let these high-risk offenders off more lightly wasn't a mistake. It was a choice. And what we're able to show in our paper is that those high-risk people are mostly young people. And it turns out that there is, you know, a really long-standing tradition in the criminal justice system to consider youth a mitigating factor in sentencing. So we generally think that if you're young, you're just less culpable for your crime. Your brain hasn't fully developed yet. We know you're probably going to age out of whatever it is that you're doing. And so so we tend to err on the side of giving young people a second chance. In Virginia, the presence of a risk assessment increased sentences for young people because the algorithm views youth as a risk factor. Young defendants got a little lucky, though, because judges didn't always do what the algorithm said. We find that the risk assessments in Virginia did increase sentencing pretty substantially for young people, but nowhere near as much as they would have if 
the judges had actually followed the recommendations all the time. And so this really calls into question whether the previous studies that suggested the judges were making mistakes all the time, they might not have been making mistakes. They might have just had a competing objective that the risk assessment wasn't taking into account. One of the most important things to consider, Doliak says, isn't necessarily exactly how the algorithms work, but rather how we work with them and how our faith in technology can mislead us. One of the reasons that people are really concerned about risk assessments is that even if they don't do any worse than the judge does, even if they just present the same information that the judge has, it's now presented with sort of a veneer of science. We might generally know to second guess a human being's decision because we make mistakes all the time. We might be biased. We know that humans are biased. But if the computer said that this person's high risk, well, then that must be accurate. And I think that we just need to kind of make sure that we're comfortable enough with all these tools to recognize that they're not magic. They're a function of what we design them to do. And in this case, you know, we're predicting risk. And that's not necessarily the only thing that we care about in these sentencing decisions. And so that seems to be what's causing a lot of the trouble. You went into this project pretty optimistic. How do you feel now? I still like to think of myself as an optimistic person. <laughs> so I do think that there is... Um, At my core, I still think that there's great potential to these kinds of tools, but I'm now much less optimistic about how quickly we will get to uh, a scenario where we're able to use them for good. And as for how Judge McNamara feels? These tools, it's it's too premature. It's It's too early. The science has not caught up with our dreams of how these would work or our hopes. And people like Professors Doliak and Stevenson are showing us where these limits are, and hopefully the tools will get better, and um, hopefully we haven't completely given up on them. But, but there is not certainty. My favorite quote for my whole job is, is Voltaire's, that doubt is, a, is not a pleasant condition, but certainty is absurd. And I, I accept the doubt and uncertainty of what I do. It's unpleasant, but it's more honest. And the risk assessments don't change that. They might take away some doubt, but only if understood right. Nicholas McNamara is a judge on the Circuit Court of Dane County, Wisconsin. Jennifer Doliak is an associate professor of economics at Texas A&M and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. Okay, that's the show. What Next TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks and hosted by me, Lizzie O'Leary. And it's part of the larger What Next family. Mary and her team will be back later today to update you on all things impeachment. And TBD is also a part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.